every year thousands of individuals return to communities across the country from correctional institutions. For these returning citizens, reentry supports become an essential part of successful reintegration back into the lives of their children, families, and communities. Reentry is complex as it touches on every aspect of a person's life. Once an individual is released from prison, challenges can arise from finding assistance for basic needs, housing, employment, healthcare, and other necessary resources. And identifying these resources in a timely manner is critical to success. Hey everyone, I'm Tom Long and welcome to the next episode of The Whistle Post, covering the world of workforce, economic, and community development with the people who are making it happen. Today we're exploring successful programs in Connecticut that have broken down barriers for returning citizens to discover opportunities for a fresh start. Today we have two guests. I'm happy to introduce you to Earl Bloodworth, Director of the Mayor's Initiative for Reentry Affairs for the City of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Mr. Bloodworth holds several years of experience leading reentry programs in New Haven as well as Bridgeport. He most recently led the Warren Kimbrough Reentry Project, which connected with individuals 12 months before the release. This ensured a healthy and successful reentry into society. He is also involved with numerous community organizations focused on literacy and community leadership. We also have with us Terry Williams, who is a Vice President of Reentry Programs for The Workplace. She is retired from the State of Connecticut Department of Corrections after 21 years of service as a parole manager. Terry also worked for the Center for Family Justice, serving domestic violence victims for over 10 years. In addition to her responsibilities at the workplace, Terry's involved with the youth in the city of Bridgeport through Connecticut Against Violence and the mayor's initiative, My Brother's Keeper. Terry holds several degrees in human resources and counseling, as well as organizational management and leadership. This conversation covers a lot of topics that are essential to understanding the needs of people reentering society. I hope it brings you a better sense of what facilitates success. And now, let's begin another episode of The Whistle Post. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here today with Terry Williams and Earl Bloodworth for an important conversation about partnerships and programs that support returning citizens to our communities. I think the best way to get started may be to give each of you a chance just to briefly to introduce yourself and give a quick overview of the program that you will receive. So maybe Terry, we'll start with you. Thank you. My name is Terry Williams. I'm the vice president for the reentry programs here at the workplace. And I oversee two programs. One is Center 180 that works with individuals who are 18 to 24 Bridgeport residents and touched by the criminal justice system. And what we do there is we provide them with job opportunities, career development, and training and occupational skills. And if they are anyone seeking GED, we provide educational service as well. We also have a platform to employment for the reentry program um, that also offers career development, job training, and employment opportunities. Great, thank you so much for being here. And enter a little bit about yourself and Myra. Oh, okay. Um, thank you for having me here, first of all. Um, the Myra program uh, was uh, incepted by Mayor Ganim and his administration um, back in 2016. 
Um, and I am its third director. Myra stands for Mayor's Initiative for Reentry Affairs, and I am the uh, director for reentry for the city of Bridgeport, overseeing uh, the Myra division here. And basically, what Myra was originally um, constructed to be was kind of a way station um, that connects all the dots for individuals returning uh, to the city of Bridgeport from being imprisoned and just connecting them to resources and, you know, depending on what they were, depending on what their assessed needs were. So I am continuing in that vein, but I'm also trying to grow the program. Um, I've been here for about a year and we've gotten a, a, a quite a few things going on. We're just looking to forge more partnerships throughout the city and uh, work uh, more tighter and closely with the Department of Corrections for the state of Connecticut. That's wonderful. Um, one of the things I'm really looking forward to this conversation talking about is a little bit more about the partnerships and communities that have come together to help to help people. But maybe we'll take a half step back and either one of you, I wonder if you can give us some perspective on the number of people that are leaving the correctional system and coming back to communities in the state of Connecticut or, or Bridgeport specifically. About how many people are we looking at in a given year or month? Um, Bridgeport is roughly on par with the other large cities. Bridgeport is the largest city in the state of Connecticut. But um, the, the other two larger urban centers being Hartford and New Haven, Bridgeport's on, far, on par um, with roughly anywhere between 69 to anywhere to 100 people coming back uh, home per month. Um, that's individuals being released from prison and different other release mechanisms from the correction system. Wow, that, that's a big number. And if I heard you correctly, we could be looking at about a thousand people ballpark a year just for the city of Bridgeport. Correct. Right, yeah. and approximately um, about 2,000 um, per month statewide. Wow. So it's a pretty important number, pretty important conversation. One of the things I heard you, you say earlier, talking about different types of release. Can you elaborate a little bit on that um, for people who might not be familiar? Sure. Um, there, a lot of people just think, you know, people are released from prison, but people that are released on transitional uh, supervision, um, going to parole and probation, uh, you have people that are released to halfway houses. You have people that are released um, in the term that we call EOS or end of sentence, which means they've served all their time and they have no community supervision. Um, and that's a pretty vulnerable population. The, the entire reentry population is pretty vulnerable, but those that are released out of end of sentence can come out homeless, are indigent without anything or any family to return to. Um, and then you also have individuals that are released um, in the status called pre-release, or excuse me, pre-trial. Mm -hmm. uh, which means they were being held because they didn't have money for their bond or for some other reason that the court felt that they needed to be held for. And these individuals have not been sentenced. They're sitting in our um, carceral system, but they have not been sentenced. And um, they may be released for any number of reasons for with a promise to appear or time served or what have you, but never having actually gone to trial. And by the time they get out, some of these individuals, you know, their whole life could have been blown up. Um, meaning that you know they could have lost their job or whatever stable housing that they had because they were you know technically locked up but they hadn't been sentenced or going to trial. Sounds like there's a lot of different categories of people that are going to have a lot of various and diverse needs depending on their situation and their support system that they have available to them. 
Absolutely correct. I've heard you talk a number of times about a holistic approach, that people have diverse needs, that there's not one size fits all solution for folks. Can you talk a little bit about your program's holistic approach to supporting people? Absolutely. What we do in all of the programs at the workplace, um, especially for the reentry population, we look at the holistic approach, which means looking at the whole person and trying to assist them with any barriers that they have, whether it be with their family members, um, with their needs to get to employment opportunities, if they have behavioral health issues, mental health issues, um, we try to look at all those aspects and service the individual while they're in our programs and um, to provide them with better opportunities to get them back to uh, employment. When, um, for, for either one of you, when you consider the customers that you serve, uh, the people coming back to the community, what would you identify as the greatest impact that's been caused by the pandemic that's caused a problem for people to get reestablished? Um, I mean, um, from my perspective, it's several things. Um, I, I come from um, a couple of different programs where pre-release was a huge part of the programming, meaning that we went inside the prisons and worked with individuals as they transitioned out, which made them more successful upon reentry and less likely to recidivate or return back to the prison system. COVID has impacted that greatly where there's no access to individuals inside the prison. Um, so you also then have individuals that might fall through the cracks and be released back into the city with no real means of um, communication or you know, depending on how long they've been locked down, no understanding or means of access to technology, which given the current state of affairs, you need at least a smartphone to be able to communicate with people and send out your emails or to be able to connect with different resources. And then on top of that, connecting individuals with uh, identification and um, getting them, you know, the Department of Motor Vehicle appointments or appointments with Social Security. So uh, COVID has impacted a lot of different things that allow us to get individuals almost at least at a um, uh, reasonable level of survivability. I know Earl touched up on an important part of it was the technology um, and a lot of individuals coming from the uh, criminal justice system and the prison system, um, the technology is uh, a piece that a lot of them were not introduced to um, prior to going into like a smartphone. There are some individuals who have been incarcerated for a long period of time and the smartphones weren't out or their technology is not up to par, that they can participate on the virtual platforms. So we know with a lot of our participants, the platforms, um, the virtual platforms have been uh, a challenge for many of our individuals and even having the, the technology devices um, to get online um, has also been challenges for us as well as housing um, with that as well. It really seems like the the issues compound upon each other because if I heard you that, you know, having access or connectivity pre-release is uh, is a significant issue, and then the technology divide and how we can connect or communicate with folks. Mm -hmm. And I also heard you mention about ID, which I assume is important if somebody's going to gain employment, they need to have that ID to start up life in a job or 
Can yeah, you not just employment, but in um, in housing, getting mm -hmm. access to housing, you need proper ID, um, and in some cases, getting access to uh, medicine. Um, if they were on some type of meds and, and completing their continuity of care, um, the the prison system will you know provide them with a script that's paid for from anywhere from thirty to forty five days, but they might not be able to access it at the pharmacy because they don't have any type of ID. Now, are there are there steps your organizations can take to help people with getting their ID once you're able to communicate and connect with them, or, or how do you, how do you go about helping folks in that situation? Yeah, so we actually um, the the Myra program actually received some funding specifically to help individuals with documentation and ID um, for those individuals. Especially, it, the money was expressly meant for individuals just coming fresh out of prison, um, but. The funders have allowed us some flexibility. So if there's an individual that's been out for a little while and we can prove reasonably who they are um, or get their discharge papers from the Department of Corrections, we can help with um, getting them connected to funding for paying for our ID or a state driver's license. Like um, the Myra program, Platform to Employment and Center 180 also has the capability to assist individuals with um, their identification, whether it be a driver's license or a Connecticut ID, as well as their birth certificate and Social Security um, to get them started. So we are funded um, in that aspect for support services as well. Those support services seem essential to getting somebody started on the path to employment. Um, Terry, I, I heard you mention technology and computers. When we think about employment and getting people reemployed, um, what other issues arise or what do you see as the greatest barrier between somebody and landing that job when they're returning to the community? With our programs, we find that transportation was number one uh, in our list that individuals were unable to get to their employer. So we provide transportation um, resources for individuals. Housing was a, a big component as well. Clothing, uniforms, and just the basic essentials um, became an issue for a lot of our participants. So when we looked at it, um, budgeting, a lot of individuals didn't know how to budget their money. So we you know, provide financial literacy to help them with the budgeting aspects of their lives. Um, so many barriers that they face, we also ran into childcare. A lot of our individuals had childcare issues that they weren't able to go to work because of their children. Um, and we're still finding that out to be an issue now, even through COVID. Um, we have to provide childcare assistance to individuals as well. Um, food, you know, food um, has also become uh, a barrier for a lot of individuals as well. What one entity we didn't face prior to COVID, but that is um, becoming a barrier as well. That's a, a long list of barriers. Does that create a sense of doubt in people's minds that they'll actually be able to succeed and, and overcome? Or what do you see in people that way when they start looking at these immense issues they've got to confront? I mean, there, there are some that are ready and prepared for that battle. Um, it really boils down to a person's mentality and the support around them. And even with that, you know, uh, Bridgeport has quite a number of programs in its, you know, area to, to assist with different things, but it, it does boil down to that individual person's want and desire to persevere 
because nine times out of 10, they're gonna hit a road bump or they're gonna stumble. And the barriers that, that, that Terry mentioned, I mean, those are concrete barriers that you can see that initially a person who's coming fresh out of prison may have to encounter. But um, around employment and other things, there was recently a, a collateral consequences study done um, by the General Assembly. And you know they found about 500 actual barriers that may inhibit an individual from gaining gainful employment based on one, the crime they may have committed um, or what uh, industry or um, trade that they're trying to get into. 500, that's a huge number. I didn't expect something to be that high. Yeah. As and the a, as skill really, set uh, as well. Yeah. They as we have the skill sets um, for employment and some of them may not have had a, a um, employment prior to going into um, prison. Yep. And there it may be blocked from certain certifications, certain types of employment. So, um, and, and in some cases they may have gone for training or gotten out and paid for some training and then find out that because of their record, you know, they can't be employed for what they've been trained to do. So when you consider those, you know, those barriers or challenges, what personal attributes, what lends themselves to somebody being successful? Or what do you try to pull out of somebody when you're mentoring them to help um, get them closer to success for them, however they define it? I mean, for, for me, um, it starts again with the individual. Everybody, and, and Terry alluded to this too, everybody's different. There's no one size fits all strategy. Um, it's really unique to that individual and, and how bad they really want to succeed. Um, quite honestly, there are some folks that come out and they're, they're not ready for um, the fight that they're going to have to to get their life right and, 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 and get off the carousel and out of the pipeline of going in and out of prison. Um, and we work, we try to work with those individuals as well and meet them where they're at. But um, a couple of things. Um, when I was in college, there was an individual that told me I had a lot of stick to And that's one of the things I try to tell these individuals that they need to have. You have to have a lot of stick to or perseverance. Um, as well as you gotta want the change. Um, really, I mean, there's, there's no other way. And what we do is we provide like a behavioral health that lets them know where they are um, and meet them where they are. And when we meet the individuals where they are, we can move them to the next level in their lives. And as Earl alluded to, perseverance is one of the key factors that we really um, drive home with our scholars. And we let them know that it's important to stick with it. It's important to follow it through and trust the process. And once you do that, you'll see a transformation in your life and the life that you, you know, have always wished to dream about will come true. And when we do that, we work with them hand in hand and they have a whole team that wraps around with them and the support to you know, be with them for every step of the way that they go through and everything that they go through. And I think that's key to have that support system. I think the support system's very important. I'm glad you mentioned the behavioral health component of it. Uh, Terry, are there other approaches or, or best practices that you find within your programs that are, are worth note? Um, I think what we, in our best practices, we, we make sure that we do affirmations and gratitudes. Um, what are you grateful for? What are the things that, you know, you woke up this morning, you can give thanks for? Um, we also demonstrate that 
we have a, a high success rate of employment, you know, and everyone's is able to be employed. Um, but you have to have the ability and the want to um, make a difference and change in your life. And we work with these, um, you know, individuals to reduce the recidivism. And we not only work with them, but we show them that in the year that we've had platforms to employment, our recidivism rate was less than 2%. Um, so we show them and um, the examples, and we also assist them, you know, in building their confidence and self-esteem and, you know, just providing them the resources. Um, so with the evidence, we show them um, with the actual program that they're a part of, they get to see it firsthand. Less than 2% recidivism, that's that's a great number. And uh, they, they must certainly feel like they're part of a family or a larger group when they're- Absolutely, uh, absolutely. We make them, and we let them know that they are a part of our family. Um, and they can call upon us and, you know, they have a whole team. They have a, res um, a resource concierge that helps them with resources. They have a retention specialist. They have an employer relation um, specialist, a, a career counselor, and two program managers. Well, I know that um, being part of a team for uh, platform employment reentry is important, but you're also part of a larger team and Earl, the uh, mayor's initiative for uh, reentry affairs is is really a community partnership if i understand it correctly um yeah definitely there i mean since I've, I've been here a year i've connected with a lot of the health programs um r &P, um the uh southwest clinic uh optimus care ccar and then uh, two of my major employment partners, uh, one being the workplace and the other being career resources. Um, I work a lot with supportive housing in the two-on-one system. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely built on, on partnerships. Um, there are too many to name actually, and I'm in the process of formalizing uh, more, making the, the partnerships more formalized with uh, putting together some MOUs. Now it and sounds like, go ahead, Terry. And both Earl and I are part of what we call the um, reentry collaboratives. Mm -hmm. um, so Earl chairs the co-chairs the New Haven reentry collaborative, and I uh, co-chair the Bridgeport reentry collaborative. And there's probably about twelve of them throughout the whole state, and we have a statewide um, reentry collaborative that we're all a part of. And what we do is we come together at the table. And we brainstorm ideas and things that would be beneficial to the reentry population that we can bring back to our local um, towns and cities. You're a step ahead of me, Terry, as usual. It sounds like you know that program is a model that could be replicated. So if, if somebody was listening to this and they weren't from a community that had this type of partnership, what would be the first step or piece of advice that you would give somebody that says, hey, we want to try to model something after what's happening in Connecticut? We would first invite them to join us um, at any one of the collaboratives so that they can learn more about the opportunities that are there um, for the population that they um, serve. And then if they feel that it's something that they would want in their um, town or city, they would reach out to you know any of the co-chairs to help them and um, walk them through it and be with them to support them as well as they're building their collaborative in their town or their city. All the information about all the different reentry roundtables can be found at ctreentry.org. Has all the listing of all the co-chairs as well as all of our meeting schedules.
Now, I know, um, you know, an employment picture can't be completed without the employer's engagement or involvement. What has been the response from the employer community uh, to the candidates that you're bringing out and putting forward to them? So I know for our um, program, what we do is we provide an eight-week subsidy that will give the employer an opportunity to work with the individual for eight weeks, and they are on the workplace's payroll to see if that person fits their needs. And if the person is someone that fits their needs, we're asking them to hire them after. Yeah, we've, um, we've been partnering uh, in Terry as well with the also the um, NAACP, which has a campaign of uh, 1 million jobs. And the state of Connecticut is the pilot for the 1 million jobs. And they're looking to garner about 10,000 jobs. And they've been doing, uh, you know, a yeoman's effort work to uh, kind of corral different industries from the healthcare to the manufacturing, um, which the state of Connecticut has made some inroads with having individuals while they're still incarcerated come out and do some work with some of these industries. And um, the industry is amendable, I should say, to, to working with uh, the population. So they've had some good results and we're looking to expand that. Well, I think something that might help expand it is, I understand the US Department of Justice recently made two significant awards uh, for grants to the Bridgeport community. And uh, both organizations have been involved. I was wondering, maybe Earl, we can start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the grant that was awarded uh, to the Bridgeport community? And then uh, Terry, talk about your award. Uh, absolutely. The Bridgeport community, um, the Myra program, the city of Bridgeport, uh, in partnership with Career Resources uh, as our subrecipient, was awarded a three-year grant totaling uh, $680,000 for us to work with individuals um, that are incarcerated and that are parents and returning to the, the city of Bridgeport. And um, we're in the process of actually uh, a couple of things. Um, we originally had applied for 750,000, but we were awarded the 680. So we're in the process of doing a budget revision for that. And then we'll be going into our planning phase, which will last anywhere from three to six months. And then we'll be going into our implementation phase where we'll be providing some programming and services for roughly about 100 parents over the three-year period and roughly somewhere between 200 to 300 kids um, in the city of Bridgeport. So that will go a long ways towards helping the family dynamic and stabilizing households. So Absolutely, absolutely. There are gonna be some parenting programming in there for fathers as well as mothers, um, some financial literacy classes, um, the whole nine yards over the three years trying to work with these individuals as they transition back into the community and reinsert themselves into their families. And Terry, I understand that yours complements it, the grant awarded was focused on employment. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Our um, grant was awarded for the second chance uh, grant and we received um, thousand dollars for that grant and what we were going to do was as Earl alluded to which is one of the um, barriers that we're facing with COVID is go inside the prison and work with pre-release um, individuals to prepare them um, for their release and provide their training opportunities for them before they're released and once they come out um, from prison we would work with them on that post-release side and work with them to gain sustainable employment opportunities. 
It sounds like a lot of promise, a lot of good ideas. Yes. I was wondering, for, for either one of you, do you have any um, thoughts you'd like to share with somebody who wanted to maybe better understand the challenges that are facing the reentry community? Um, any advice or guidance to somebody who might look to want to get involved with your organizations or just better work with their, their customers? Tara, if you want to, you can go first if you like. I think what we, you know, again, um, the thought would be is that the model for the community has been working with the reentry collaboratives where all the partners come together in one form and share their um, program ideas, share their events that are going on. And also, it's also a networking um, system that we work with and providing that. Uh, what we decided to do with the criminal justice is to start with the Myra program as being the mother hub to receive all the intakes and funnel them out to um, different um, agencies and organizations to work with the population. So we want to kind of continue with that model and um, anyone that wants to come into the fold, we can bring them into the fold that way. And Earl, any parting thoughts from you as well? I, I would just say that, you know, um, Bridgeport has a lot to offer this particular population. Um, as Terry noted, um, trying to turn Myra, um, the Mayor's Initiative for Rancher Affairs, into the hub that connects the dots. So, you know, all these different resources are not necessarily in silos. And um, we are always looking for serious help and volunteers or people that want to contribute uh, to the success of these individuals that are in our community because regardless of what you may think about somebody, they, these folks are coming home. They're going to be a part of our community and it would behoove us to um, ingratiate ourselves to them and make them productive members of the community. That sounds like very sound advice, especially when we're looking at the numbers you mentioned at the start here. Um, you know, I wish you both the best of luck with the collaboratives and continuing to build that successful model and also with each of the grants that you're gonna be implementing over the next year and two. So um, I wanna say Terry and Earl, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate your thoughts and uh, all the good advice that you've given. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for having, having us. Thank you, Tom. That brings us to the end of another episode of The Whistle Post. I would like to thank both Earl and Terry one more time for the great information about the Reentry Collaborative for helping to educate us about the numerous barriers returning citizens must contend with. Clearly, the partnerships their organizations are fostering support returning citizens by providing access to valuable resources and a network of holistic support. Lastly, I would like to thank you for listening. If you'd enjoyed this conversation, share the podcast with your friends and family. I encourage you to subscribe to The Whistle Post on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, this is Tom Long at The Whistle Post.